This is the day that changed the world when history held its breath. We are the SpyFi Guys, and this is the longest day. Welcome to the SpyFi Guys, where we cover spy facts, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And I am ZJ. Yes, today we have brought ZJ back. You may remember him from Torah, Torah, Torah to continue our D-Day multi-episode extravaganza. What can I say? I just really, really like watching Daryl Zanuck movies with you, Zach. Which one was he? He's the producer, right? The producer who also made Torah, Torah, Torah? Yep. Yep. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so we are back with The Longest Day from 1962. Perhaps you may be wondering, is this a spy movie? Well, it is no. in the same way Torah, Torah, Torah was, where there's a lot of intelligence involved. Yeah. At least in the beginning. <laughs> Torah, 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 I think they ended up digging a lot more into the intelligence side. Mm-hmm. This one, they, they did a little bit especially towards the beginning, like you said, Zach, with uh, kind of the, the mix-up, the fake paratroopers dropping. Yeah, and then it turns into a war movie. Yep. <laughs> Which is not to say I didn't enjoy it, but it is debatable on how much of a spy movie it is. It's called The Longest Day, but did it also have to be the longest movie? It's just shy of three hours, which I know now in the days of like Marvel movies is, not, is almost the average, but did it need to be this long? Absolutely, it, it did not. It, it could have, if it wanted, been a very long spy movie and a very long war movie mm. simultaneously. <laughs> but this will not be the longest podcast, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> had any of you seen this before? Yes, I had seen parts of it because there were things that jumped out to me. I was like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. I have not seen it. No, this is oh, my first time watching surprising, it. surprising, ZJ. Yeah, this is also my first time watching it. I knew a few things. Well, mainly one person who appeared in it, one actor who is close, near and dear to my heart, who appeared in it, and that's about it. Yeah, we know you love John Wayne. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's you, Zach, not me. It's true. I do like John Wayne, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. So, shall we get started? Zach, do you have the IMDb plot synopsis? Yep, here we go. The events of D-Day told on a grand scale from both the Allied and German points of view. That's uh, it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So we start with the very iconic image of the helmet on the beach and a big block of text that says Occupied France in the fifth year of World War II. There's a guy running who's shot and Nazis take a folder that he's carrying. Do we ever find out what this was? Yes. So I don't know that we specifically find out within the context of the movie, but Uh my guess, and this is a guess, based on what the movie then cuts to is that they intercepted the code words that this Ah, resistance cell is going to be looking for on the radio. That does make sense, because I was wondering, hey, how do they know this stuff? Do they have a mole in the resistance? That may may make make sense. Yeah, they have Uh, their ways. I like how the spy stuff is right in the beginning of the movie. It's enough to trick you into thinking that maybe this is, in fact, a spy movie. And speaking of spy movies, did you recognize the next person who we see on screen? It's Goldfinger. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely did. I actually mm-hmm. have my my first note is is that Goldfinger, and the answer was obviously yes because I knew that that was Goldfinger. Gert Frobe. Yeah, the actor is German, right? Austrian, yes. I believe. Oh, okay. oh, 
or was no he may be german i think this is auric goldfinger austrian and that's what i'm thinking of no auric goldfinger is supposed to be british but he doesn't sound like it there's a line in there yeah well because I, I read a behind the scenes story about goldfinger where the actor what was his name again christian gert fro gert fro ah, you're cutting into my spy fact versus fiction zach <laughs> but go ahead Wait. About Goldfinger? Yes, about him. Okay, well, he didn't speak any English. He just showed up one day and he said, hello, it's very nice to meet you. I'm very pleased to be here. And they said, great, come on board. And he said, hello, it's very nice to meet you. I'm very Mm -hmm. pleased to be here. Because that's the only English he could speak. Yeah, his agent uh, told them that (laughs) the producers that he could speak English and he clearly did not. And he's dubbed over in Goldfinger. There's something about him that I will talk about in Spy Fact versus Fiction. But we'll get there. Gert Frobe is German, just for the record. So, yeah, next we have a D-Day girl. For those of you who have not listened to our microdot about D-Day girls, that was last week. Please check it out. Just going back to Goldfinger briefly, like the French people who are nearby are like making fun of him as like being a shining example of the Ubermensch. <laughs> He's far from it. Yeah. Uh, we got some Nazis marching, doing this big, big display. Uh, and then we get the first of many, many um, titles saying who these people are, and then they oh never appear again. It's <laughs> just like in uh... Tora, Tora, Tora. Tora, Tora, Tora. Those guys usually reappeared. A lot of these people appear once, never again. Field Marshal Von Runsted, CIC, OB West. I wrote down every single one. <laughs> Why'd you do that? <laughs> just to prove a point? Yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so we have the D-Day girl, the Nazis who are inspecting the hay cart, and she, uh, Janine Boitard distracts them. Yeah, she comes up a lot in the mm-hmm. movie. So she a was lot, a lot. Yeah. A few Listen, times. Thank God, the only character who's not a white man in the entire movie, of which there <laughs> she, are so many. <laughs> word on the street is that she was Daryl Zanuck's mistress in France, one of three who appear in the film. Oh. Nice. <laughs> so we get the Nazis marching a bunch of prisoners. And we meet uh, Alexandre Renaud, who is the mayor of San Glace. And we go to a church service where we meet Père Louis Rion, who, again, like these people never... I'm going to name every single one of them who appear, whose name <laughs> gets thing, but they never, but most of these guys never appear again. Watch, you know, the mayor does come back briefly. Yeah, I recognize St. Maria Glace from the book yeah. that I read. It features prominently there, too. Major Werner Pluscott, who's the... 352nd Coast Artillery Division with a dog. <laughs> He's showing the gun emplacements and mines and obstacles. Apparently, there are 4 million mines and obstacles out there. We also meet Field Marshal Irvin Rummel. Yeah, there's a part where he's recapping the war. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a, it looks like a green screen glitch where he's standing in front of the ocean and then he disappears oh, and yeah. he reappears. I assume I that, that that was an editing problem with the that's, film. That's probably it, yeah. Well, it's really but bad. I noticed that as well. Yeah, it was... that. Well, the, the green screen before that was pretty egregious as well. That was, I think, the worst green screen in the film. And there was some other noticeable. Would have been rear projection at that time, not even green screen or blue screen. Oh. Well, then he punched a hole right through the rear projection. <laughs> so then we get our t- our title card. Actually, I think I'm just going to use it here. I think this is when he says he drops it the title. It will be the For longest the ger- day. Allies and the Germans. It will be the longest day. And then the title. Dun, dun, the dun, longest dun, dun. day. <laughs> Roll credits. A Daryl Zanuck production. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, we get the first of many stings of Beethoven's Fifth, which w- wasn't sure why I was here, but we'll th- we actually get a good explanation later on. Oh, nice! I missed the explanation. Yeah, I didn't well well pay attention. Oh, okay, <laughs> so next we meet General Gunther Blumentritt, who ha- was at the headquarters, German Command, France. Apparently, there was a poem by Verlaine transmitted over the radio. Mm-hmm. In like a personal ad section, seemingly, or not personal ads, but like personal messages <laughs> section. Well, the long the, sobs of the, the violins of autumn. So I know a little bit about that. This um, this was a chan- a radio channel operated by I think the British. Okay. I don't remember if it was a specific channel that they operated or if it was like a spot within an existing radio right. channel. But they every day, I believe, would read off personal messages. So these are messages that most of them were nonsense, but mm-hmm. they could hide, you know, code words within them at any point that they wanted. And it was just something that happened every day. So you don't have to announce, hey, here's a message to the <laughs> to the French resistance. They would know mm-hmm. that at this time they tuned into the radio and listened for that because that was one of the messages that appeared. Yeah, that's a cool. See, all right. There's some good spy action there. Coded messages in within radio signals. Yeah. So they, they get this poem, and the leadership basically ignores it. They said, oh, that doesn't prove anything. Well, that's not the whole story. So the whole story is that they need to, if the second verse is read from that poem, mm-hmm. then the attack will happen in 24 hours. But yes, like you said, they basically ignore it. Yeah, the leadership ignores it. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, this is like a bookend or a parallel movie to Tora, Tora, Tora. <laughs> not only because it's the same producer, but uh-huh. because this time it's the US who's doing the attack and it's the German leadership are the one who has all the warning signs mm-hmm. and ignore it and get caught with their pants down. And it's yeah. very interesting. To be fair, if I was the German leadership, I wouldn't trust German intelligence either because they weren't very good at what they did for a while before. <laughs> oh, okay. Did not know that. But they make a very important point that, all right, so yes, we have this and maybe a time, but we really have no idea where or really exactly when the attack will happen. So great. This is mostly useless to us. Well, again, that's like Tora, 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 where they were expecting the Japanese to attack somewhere at some point. People who were in the know did. Yeah. But they couldn't keep the military on alert all the time. Mm-hmm. And for the Germans, it was the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And they also get a report on the weather. Apparently, this is the, they have the worst storm over the channel in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, right. The weather is a very prominent point in the first half hour of the movie. Yep, yep. So we go over to England, one of 108, or sorry, 1,108 allied camps. There are trucks going out and a few coming in. They check the badges. There's a meal line. Didn't American you miss a few introductions? <laughs> no. Like there were a few I... title plates. Oh, did I? No, that was it, that was the big one. England, one of 108. Oh, okay. Allied I thought camps. that there were more title plates, but I guess not. Yeah. There may have been one for... Oh, I, mi- I missed one for... Uh, my autocorrect changed whatever his title was over whatever to obverse. So I have no idea what his title was, but Helmuth Meyer, <laughs> uh, who was, I think, the one who received the transmission. Uh, anyways, going back to the camp, Americans are complaining about food and sleep. There's a rumor that attacks happening. This was interesting to me. The the two Brits talking and one of, one of whom like requests permission to write home. His wife has a is having a baby, but it's not his. What? That was hilarious. <laughs> I love that. Just the way you said it. It's not mine. Oh, it's not mine, sir. And the other one's like, what? So uh, so here's something really quick about the food. Yeah. Um. 
So I read David Webster's biography. David Webster is one of the paratroopers, served in the 101st Airborne. He's in Band of Brothers. And one of the points that he makes is that, as you guys probably know, the invasion was supposed to be on June 5th, and then they postponed it a day. Mm-hmm. And on June 5th, they served them a really nice meal, like steak <laughs> oh, no. and all this good food because they thought it was going to be their last meal. Like a lot of them, a lot of those guys, it would be their last meal. But then when right. it was delayed, they gave them a bunch of slop because they were like, oh, we didn't have any food. We didn't think you guys would still be here. Oh, man. So we also see a bunch of duck boats loading up. Have you guys ever been on a duck boat? Yep. Those are yep. fun. I like, I like those. And I find it hilarious that now they're like all tour buses, basically. Yep. Question that I don't know if it's an unanswerable question. How many of those are actually like I presumably none of them are actually from the war and are just scratch built now? Presumably. You know, that's, that's an interesting question. And I'm not sure that that's actually the case. Yeah. Um, Is that I, I presume at least at the start, a bunch of them may have been. But nowadays, it being what, eight? What did we say it was 80 years after the war, basically? Mm hmm. Almost or more than what's the map on that? Yeah, if you get to if you go to Boston, (laughs) you can definitely ride in a duck boat. Mm -hmm. I did one in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, Yank is complaining about a smell and others. The other ones reminiscing about I don't actually remember, but there's just a lot of trying to give these characters or these. I'm not it'd be generous to call them characters. These (laughs) people, some sort of characterization without actually spending any effort on it. (laughs) Yeah, you do what you can, but you get the impression they've been stuck there, and they say they've been stuck there for multiple days, like three yeah. days. That's pretty unfortunate. Yeah, yep, that was something I remember from um, I don't remember, I think it was the longest day, just talking about how a lot of the troops that hit the shore were mm-hmm. not only hitting the shore with gunfire all around them and stuff, but they were absolutely, totally had been seasick for three Ooh. volt straight days, oh. and they the and then that only got worse when they got in the tiny boats for the landing because they got tossed around in those. So it's like mm-hmm. going from being seasick to going to being really, really seasick to being blown up on a beach. So Jeez. <laughs> That's why they're the greatest generation. Yeah, it so... would have been tough to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Next here that uh, one of the colonels wants to see some men, and we find out this is Colonel Benjamin Vandervoort, played by John Wayne. Woohoo, John Wayne. Yeah, he says they're itching to go, which is not consistent with what Webster said. Webster <laughs> said that on the day that they called them off, everyone like threw a party because they got to live for one more day. <laughs> what you want to think, or what America wants audiences to think, is that, or the allies, everyone wants them to think that they're just raring to go and serve their country. Yeah, you like to believe it. But more to the point, like if you know something bad is coming, you want to just get it over with because the waiting's true. the hardest part. Yeah. We next meet General Norman Cota, U.S. 29th Division, who says it's on his schedule and that Ike has called a conference at 930, and there's no way that he'll call it off again. No way. (laughs) Can I say it was kind of funny to watch a movie with Robert Mitchum and John Wayne sharing the screen together? Because Robert Mitchum and John Wayne kind of have that same on-screen persona for me. Uh, This is Robert (laughs) Mitchum, this colonel here. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, for those yeah. of us who are not familiar with older stars, what else was Robert Mitchum in? <laughs> oh gosh, what wasn't he in? Actually, wasn't I don't he, know what he was in. Wasn't um, he like a cowboy too? <laughs> yeah, I think he was in cowboy films. I want to say he. Let's see, he was on other war movies: Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo, um, Okay, Cape Fear, El Dorado. Oh. Um, 
he he was a huge star, but I think he was more of a huge star in the forties and fifties. Um, whereas it. John Wayne was maybe fifties and sixties kind of. So, and this is towards the end of John Wayne's career as well. He's reached the point where he's Americans' granddad, as opposed to Americans' dad. <laughs> I think in this. Men in the barracks gambling. I think playing craps. I think so. So yeah. much gambling. And the guy makes so much money. He makes yeah. like thousands of dollars. $2,500. More than he's ever had in his life. Yep. Uh, did you guys recognize this actor? No. I did uh, not. He was Tony in West Side Story. Oh, okay. He looked a little familiar, but I couldn't place him. Yeah, he looked like he was chewing up the scenes too much to just be, you know... <laughs> Just Someone who hadn't been in another random actor, yeah, yeah, a random extra. So, <laughs> how much money is two thousand dollars in nineteen forty money? I feel like that's like ten thousand dollars. That would have been a lot. Absurd. Yeah, I think that would have been like, I want to say like buy a house money. Probably <laughs> well, not. And I like how it's just a big armful of cash that he like carries around with him. Yeah, no one seems to be paying too much attention to their cash in this. Just an ongoing thing that I want to note. Actors are older than their roles pretty much always, especially mm-hmm. in war movies, because it's hard yeah. to get a bunch of 19-year-olds on screen. Right. Um, but this movie seems particularly egregious, because we've got people who are <laughs> all sorts of ages. I mean, Red Buttons does not look like a private in the U.S. Army. He's the other guy who's shooting craps with him here, and then uh, uh. gets hung up on the church later in the film. Okay, so value of $2,500 from 1944 is about forty thousand or forty one thousand and sixty six dollars and sixty two cents. Holy shit. <laughs> that is a lot. Um but yeah ZJ you're right with the ages. Everyone in this movie looks really old for their roles. Like I guess I think John Wayne was probably at least in his forties, probably older than that. And a a colonel I think would be more like late twenties. People were young. Soldiers were young in World War II. Yeah. Next we meet flight Officer David Campbell, RAF. I was trying to figure out, because we do actually come back to this guy later in the movie. And this is yes. Richard Burton, who is another famous actor. Hmm. Yeah, come on, Christian. You got to recognize him. <laughs> I right? recognized him, yeah. Okay, got got. But this scene was like the most melancholy British scene. <laughs> he, yeah, I'm going keeps... to get my drink and just drink it over here. Where's Johnny? I, I, he, I loaned him my boots. He's at the bottom of the Atlantic. <laughs> Did he actually say that? That's hilarious. He does. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> I was going to say, he's practically the same character as the spy who came in from the cold. <laughs> but yeah, that's my note. Melancholy. He says, I'm one of the last of the 1940 mob. So it's mm-hmm. like, dang, he's been fighting since 1940 and hasn't gotten to retire or whatever. Yeah, and everyone else is dead. I'm the last of the double deuce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm not sure what else more to say about him other than it's just the most melancholy scene in a in like a canteen when he's just drinking. uh, Richard Burton kind of continues the trend I noticed in this movie of you can tell who's a famous actor because they all get to the camera pans over, (laughs) it zooms in on them, and they sit down and in their grizzled voice they talk about war and. What it means for <laughs> men, and you know, yeah. we get that right. from a number of people. Mm-hmm. And our next person to meet is General James Gavin, U.S. 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, Vandervoort goes to see him, the, and they discuss their drop zone placements. And there's conversation more about the weather. And I, Vandervoort says, "Whose side is God, God on, anyways?" 
Yeah, funny how they keep coming back to that. Yeah, so I just have, like, more weather discussion, more of the Germans messing up. <laughs> so there's a nice bit of foreshadowing here, because they mentioned that they're doing practice drops um, over in England, and at one of them, they overshot by a bunch and landed in the middle of the town square. That's true. I hadn't thought of that as foreshadowing, yeah. but yeah, you're right. Uh, there's another mention of the Ike's meeting at 930 and we go over to Group Captain J.N. Stagg, RAF Meteorological Services. And now we've got an improved weather report. CJ, do you want to talk about the weather now since we brought it up? <laughs> yeah, so um, the key thing here is, so England, of course, is to the northwest of France, uh, across the English Channel. And the Germans, you know, at this point in the war, they don't have really any access to meteorological reports from past Britain. They've huh. got submarines. I believe that they set up a listening station on an iceberg to try and transmit weather data, but they have a really hard time getting weather reports from that area. And of course, weather from there sweeps down across England and down to France on the coast. So basically what this means is the British keep getting a preview of tomorrow's weather ah, a day earlier than the Germans do. Interesting. It's, it's not hard and it's not a hard fact. You still can't know for certain what the weather's going to be. But the British get this potentially improved weather report, and the Germans have no idea because they can't see it that far out. So Ooh, nice. I would never would have thought of that. That is in, that is a cool, a nice, fun fact. Yeah. So anyway, that's why uh, the weather plays such an important point. And I think that uh, meteorological service was a very key part of the war for the British in particular. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so next we meet General Wolfgang Hager, Hauptquartier Luftwaffen Commando West, who is calling one of the pilots whose name I did not write down because he did not have a big giant title. Colonel Priller. That's the one, Priller, yes, who is complaining because he's only got two planes left of his entire squadron. They've moved all the rest of them everywhere else, but they don't think there'll be an invasion, so why worry? There's bad weather, again with the weather. Right. This was just like in Tora 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 as well. Remember the two pilots who have to take on the whole Japanese fleet themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, we meet General Eric Marks, Commandadeerer General. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, or 84 Army Corps. This is something I didn't know about. They were, do they were getting ready for a bunch of war games yeah. before. And this guy actually theorized that, no, they're not going to go to where, where we everyone thinks they're going to go in Calais. No, right. I think they'll actually go further out, so not an easier landing at Normandy, even though it's bad weather. And then he's like, but, you know, this is just a theory. We have no proof, and it'll be good for the war games. <laughs> so uh, one thing I learned, uh, apparently the war games guy, the general, mm -hmm. was Mark. actually one of the people who made, developed the first plans for Operation Barbarossa in the East for oh. the invasion of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and surprisingly enough, in real life, was even more severe looking than the actor. <laughs> oh, I didn't think he was that severe looking. Okay. Uh, it's pretty, pretty severe looking. <laughs> we go over to Ike's high-level meeting. We get a briefing on the weather. Ike has to decide whether to go forward or not. But one of the key factors here is that the American convoys, which have to travel the farthest distance, need to know within basically the next half hour. And right. He, so yeah. he's thinking about it, and he said, you know, we postponed already once before, and if we do it again, such a postponement is too bitter to contemplate. The actor who plays Eisenhower looks a lot like him. I was like, actually, no. <laughs> so 
apparently what they did because they're in the credits they credit the actor who played eisenhower and the actor who voiced eisenhower as ah. separate. so apparently eisenhower they went for the get someone who looks like him and get someone that sounds like him put them together and you got eisenhower I because mean, Eisenhower had just yeah. been president, what, four years before that? So, yeah. voiceover was not like, or just dubbing flat out in English films was not that uncommon. We just talked about Kurt Frobit doing it. Yeah, I thought the actor might have been Eisenhower's like kid or something. That's how much he looked yeah. like him. <laughs> right as he's contemplating it, we get a brief shot back to Marx who says that he doesn't believe that I could be that risky. And as soon as he says that, smash cut back to Ike saying, All right, the order is given. Hell yeah. And the word trickles down towards all the different divisions. Vandervoort gets word here from Lord Lovat, Special Services Brigade, or Special Service Brigade, and G- General Raymond Barton, U.S. 4th Division. So I wanted to say something quick about the decision. Oh, yeah, they like, I liked how in the movie they were like, if we don't go now, then we won't be able to go due to the tides July. until July. And by then, the word will definitely have gotten out. Mm-hmm. And we'll have all these security issues. It's like 13 days in these other movies we've covered where it's about these leadership needing to make decisions with bad or incomplete intel and how history kind of swings on that. Yep. So I still like it. Path, we get a couple of different briefings. Pathfinders will light drop zones for the paratroopers. We get another briefing, which looks like it's a paratrooper um, briefing, but there's a dummy paratrooper in the center of it and up when they land they'll set off fireworks yeah it's a little bit of disruption well it's yeah it's to set confusion and misdirection you know they think they'll be landing in some place and not or it also just make you know make them more of those out there they can might target those instead of the real actual parachutists so we get vandervoort addressing his men and they call them crickets are passed out they keep coming back in the movie. <laughs> they sound suspiciously like a clicker for dog training. <laughs> click, click. Could be, yeah. So, because there's going to be a lot of people out there and it'll be dark. The, if What you do is you give a click to verify that you say you're there. And then you answer with two clicks. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's why people tune into the podcast for their production value. <laughs> Next, we meet Alphonse Leno, who is Mayor de Coville sur Orient. And I'm sorry for my pronunciation. It's all right. I mean, you're the Francophile here, I think, among the three of I'm us. More of, of the three of us, probably, but I'm also more of a Anglophile. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's listening to the radio. He hears. The same or another broadcast, which is saying, you know, molasses will bring forth, or tomorrow will bring forth cognac. And then he hears, John has a long mustache. Or, <laughs> what was, uh, this I could almost un- actually hear it in French, but I don't remember what it was. I think it's John has a long mustache. And yeah, what's interesting here is that he's getting a different signal mm-hmm. than the one get later, the other. Yeah. Yeah, and this part has some humor where he's like so excited and he's running around and he's trying to get his, his hat and his coat and his keys. Yep, he gets out his old uh, World War One Kurosawa helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's little bits of humor around the movie, which I did appreciate. And next we go to uh, the resistance. Is this still the same D-Day girl? Janine? Yeah. yeah. It's okay. her again. I thought so, but I like, so it's back to Janine Boita. 
who's bandaging up soldiers, listening to the radio. There is a fire at the travel agency. And then they hear, wounds my heart with a monotonous languor, which is the second part of the poem. Yes. Mm. So they start handing out rifles to the resistance, and they tell the soldiers who are there, we'll be back. I think that the, the soldiers she's bandaging up are uh, British flyers. Ah, um, that makes sense. I was down. wondering who would be there already. <laughs> that, that was actually something the French resistance did quite a bit, is mm. uh, helping British flyers get back to uh, Britain via either neutral countries or the coast or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Germans also know about this poem, though. So yeah. they get the message, but can they communicate to the upper levels? Not really. So interestingly, um, I don't remember what this general's name is, but the uh, German general, general Van Salmuth, who's playing who's, cards. Yes. Um, Belshaber der 15 Army. I'm reading every single one. I'm making mm -hmm. a point. <laughs> he actually does believe the guy. Um, uh -huh. That's right, yeah. Um, and he says, you know, what? no reason to stop playing cards, though. But he says, mm -hmm. yeah, tell the army to be on alert. Yeah, and, he puts uh, the 15th army on full alert. Yeah, I, I think it's more that he doesn't show the appropriate level of concern since they're about to be invaded. <laughs> he says, I'm too old to get worked up about these things. <laughs> <laughs> All the ships take off from England. It's the biggest armada the world has ever known. I feel like this is that was John Wayne saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> also, we get an appearance armada. of someone who will, in three years be, or maybe two years, be famous. Do you recognize him? Of course, Captain, Captain Pike. Pike. <laughs> and not that new Captain Pike for those of you Strange New Worlds fans. Yeah, he's the old one, Jeffrey Hunter, and he was famous before this. That's true, right? Just not among nerds. Yeah. I looked him up. I looked up his Wikipedia article, and the reason why is because in the book Inside Star Trek, uh -huh. okay, it's all about Star Trek. According to them, because he was in this movie, when they asked him to come back for Star Trek, his wife told him to say no. She said, "You're a movie star now. You don't need to do television." Okay. But then I looked up Jeffrey Hunter's Wikipedia page. He did a lot of yeah. Well, more importantly, he had been in a lot of movies before mm -hmm. this, and he did other TV shows later. Yeah. Just I not Star Trek. <laughs> reading about that, and I think it was just really the wife who just did not want him to go back for some reason or another. Wasn't it the pilot for a Star Trek film? 64, maybe 65? Yeah, something like that. It was so close this to that. In 62. So that timeline mm -hmm. doesn't match up at all. But yeah, Cap <laughs> Captain Pike's here, and he seemingly got a Dear John letter. And also, there's some mention of Dear John Laws, which I wasn't sure what that was about. I, yeah. I was going to look it up, but I forgot. CJ, did you know anything about that? Nope. If your husband or whatever was overseas, you could have a boyfriend. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. I don't know. I mean, I could do some quick Googling here. Or maybe some like no-fault divorce 50 years earlier or something like that. Well, while you're looking that up, another observation I had is before this, I sent you guys the Longest Day Choral Song, which is, or words, I guess, set to the theme of the movie. But in this scene, we hear it played on the harmonica in the background. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I like that. I like the choral version. That was nice. Yeah. You hear that music much more later in the movie. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. Okay, I don't see anything about Dear John Laws. Oh, wait. Um, uh, yeah, that would be a good one to have for Spy Fact versus Fiction. The Nazis are having a party. It's General Mark's birthday. He cuts his cake only so that there's four slices. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he cut more later. Uh, but I noticed uh, this is again a recurring theme throughout this movie. 
which is it says General Marks, the sixth of June, Saint Lo Normandy. Like, who writes that on a cake? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like a title screen that he's chopping in half. Anyway, there's other things like that though. Where earlier in the movie, someone says her birthday is tomorrow, the sixth of June. <laughs> See, I, I kind of appreciated though they didn't do like how many days before the attack. How many? I mean, they did that. They do that after the attack starts, but beforehand, I appreciate that it, it's not yet another thing of text on screen. <laughs> Very true. It is though. It's a thing of text on a cake on okay, screen. Okay, on a cake. But it's, it's, it's but, but like the other one was more subtle. And, yeah. But I I don't know it it didn't bother me. It would have been great if they had kept doing that throughout the movie. Like it shows a calendar and someone's tearing off pages. No, from that it. is the worst. Yeah, that I is surprising. Like that. That okay. I'm gonna go on a weird tangent here. But have you ever heard of the movie Remember Me? I've got, heard, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't know about Pattinson it. and and Pierce Brosnan. It's a family drama, hmm. but you don't realize it's set in two thousand one, and like you just oh. see, <laughs> you see, like she he has a younger sister, and they'll be writing you know whatever the date is on the board. But then on the you know at the climax of the movie, the teacher's writing September eleventh, two thousand one. Oh wow, yeah, man. I of heard course, of that Robert scene. Pattinson, yeah, <laughs> Robert Pattinson is waiting for his dad in his office, in his dad's office, played by Pierce Brosnan, and you get a, a window, and it's a zoom out, and he's in the World Trade Center. Of course, yes. And it's like, so when anytime I hear of something like that, where it's like, oh, I was just ripped, I was like, that just reminds me of that, and it can be <laughs> so poorly done. They should have I, uh, yeah, instead had him be like. Well, today, June 6, 1944, and it zooms out, and he's on a boat landing on Omaha Beach. <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh, you do. Yeah. Here is where we get our explanation of Beethoven's Fifth, why it's so prominent in the movie. Okay, I always forget which one is the music that is in the movie and one that's out of the movie. I've never remembered. It's either diegetic, diegetic, or non-diegetic. I think diegetic is where it's explained in the movie, and non-diegetic is not. I think we get a case of non-diegetic here, because we hear drums playing the Beethoven's Fifth, Mm -hmm. which is Morse code. It's three dots and a dash, which is Morse code for V, for victory. Ah. Yeah. And the guy on screen literally explained that to me, and I still didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we get a little, and there'll be no ground support. And he keeps hearing this, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque voice saying, hold until relieved. Well, there's a a part where it says, hold until relieved, and then he turns around. So (laughs) I I had a a little mystery science theater moment where I was like, who said that? (laughs) (laughs) So next we meet General Max Pemsel, Befelstab 7 Army who reports that many of the key officers are away for the war games, but he says, all right, everyone who hasn't left yet should postpone till tomorrow. (laughs) And we go back to the or go to some paratroopers. Apparently they're 11 minutes out from the drop zones. We find out the uh, gambler whose name I've forgotten already. Start Tony. Maybe (laughs) it wasn't. No, yeah. Tony from West Side Story. That's right. That's how I'm going to, you know, he, Lost all of his winnings. So he's like, all right, I'm in the clear now. <laughs> I also like when John Wayne does the, the cricket again and they all pull it out. That was cute. <laughs> so interesting side note for those of us who like airplanes. Apparently uh-huh. the only airplane that they could get was a British plane. Uh, okay. Because these are very, very obviously British bombers. And um, it was just strange to me that they're like, 
okay, you know, we've got all this stuff, but we're not going to bother getting a, you know, a boilerplate of a C-47. <laughs> we're yeah. just going to go with a British bomber and say that the paratroopers are in it. It was not obvious to me that it was a British bomber. Did but, not. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> the roundels right there. The egg-shaped <laughs> tail plane is unique. To the... Anyway. All right. So next we get the Nazis reporting radar interference and radio jamming. And as our good friend Nabu Governor C.O. Bibble will tell us, a communications disruption can mean only one thing. Invasion. That's yeah, right. I got excited because I thought that Sio Bibble was in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? He probably is in here somewhere, too. He's British. He was about the right age. <laughs> but yeah, so they start dropping the Ruperts, which is the n- name for the uh, dummies. And they work really, really uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> like, absurdly well. <laughs> yeah, like there's an entire company just shooting at them in an open field. <laughs> <laughs> I was disappointed we didn't see them, like, go off once they hit the ground. Well, I was also surprised that there was never a point where one of the Germans was like, cease fire, cease fire. Oh my gosh, these are just a bunch of dummies. It just cuts <laughs> before that happens. Yeah, yeah. So the French resistance, including Janine Boitard, is sabotaging train tracks, uh, but then a, a couple of troops spot them. Janine causes a distraction by, by you know, going over and biking and get. This was kind of absurd. You know, just biking along the railroad tracks in the middle of the night. Well, As he you lives do. over in that farmhouse there. So well, the guy immediately was like, no, no one does. That's cool. So, he actually knows what's going on. What's up, CJ? So more spy, spy-ish stuff is they apparently land French troops right at that location because the oh. paratroopers drop there and yeah. she looks over at them on the field and she sees that they have a f- patch that says France or something mm. on them. Mm-hmm. So these are um, French commandos at this point that have oh, joined cool. them for okay. the rest of the operation. While she's distracting them, they ki- or distracting one of the Nazis, they kill the other one, and then she is trying to get get the other guy to not ca- warn the train that they're trying to derail it, and she pulls him over the bridge. Yeah, this part was crazy. He almost is drowned, but then yeah. the commando shoots the Nazi, and then they get to derail the train. It's pretty graphic. Like there's a part where it shows a bunch of guys like on fire. I think. <laughs> yeah. It's Did they blow up a real train for this? Maybe. <laughs> or at least a very detailed model. Yeah, and then they have, I mean, they have a shot of train cars on fire with people running out of them. They had to do that real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, the rest of the movie is just kind of like, well, actually, I should say that the next few bits is like just little vignettes, mm-hmm. which happens a lot. And the one I wanted to point out was the paratrooper who goes into the well. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Not... Yeah, I do. I, I don't know. Go ahead. Okay, so there's a poor paratrooper goes directly into a well, and then it shows his parachute getting kind of pulled into it. Oh. And the implication is that he drowns inside, but it was... Yeah. I would have liked it if it was a little bit clearer. <laughs> like, yeah. for once, the movie was a little too subtle. <laughs> I thought it was funny because him falling into the well... I, I don't remember if it's the music at the scene, but I felt like yeah. it was almost comic. Com- comedic? Yeah, it's comedic. Like... That scene in Tor 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 where they're like making jokes and then all of a sudden, you know, the bomber comes in and, cr- and changes uh-huh. the entire tone. Like, I just don't know whether the movie was saying like, haha, he's stuck in a well or oh, he's in a well and it's slippery and he won't be able to climb out and he's going to drown. I, don't I, th- know. I think it was the little gurgling noises. It was like, <laughs> gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. Uh, but yeah, so Marx gets report dummy parachutists and communication problems and he immediately realizes what's going on and he actually gets. Someone brings over an example of one of the dummies. 
Well, the, uh, yeah, dummy after it went off, so it was yeah. all burned. Yeah. And, and then we yeah. have the, the paratroopers dropping right into the German headquarters. Uh, not quite yet. So we have, first we get the French woman who sees the parachutist. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they start landing all over the place. They start landing in trees. And, and yes, like you said, right in the courtyard. There's also the pastor, because I didn't realize he was actually a pastor <laughs> until I saw the collar. So when he says, I'm you know lo- missing my communion set, I thought it was like... Like he was, it was a nickname for his rifle or something. DJ, maybe you can weigh in on this, but I thought it was strange that you would have a chaplain go in the first wave. Like, I understand they need to be around, but do they need to be like in the planes? I think they maybe wouldn't have needed to be, but probably a number of them wanted to be there. Like, they Mm -hmm. felt it was important, you know, to be there as a man of God or something. I mean, that's true. Part of their job is to administer last rites. So, anywhere people die, you know, they're going to be needed. Yep, um, and, and I do have a little bit about that in Spy Fact versus Fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one other note I had was uh, that we get that the bald German who looks out of his window and oh, yes, and like thinks he hears something. So he goes and he puts on his shoes backwards, like mm-hmm. he's just in a hurry, and he puts on his shoes backwards. Mm. And that detail yeah. comes back later. That's yeah. right. <laughs> And then so we ha- also see a building on fire, although it's unclear. Is that from the attacks or did it just happen to be on fire? It is unclear. That's right. Yeah. The mayor from earlier <laughs> comes back and I wasn't sure which side he was on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's French, right? So he's probably yeah. France. One would hope so. But um, so he finds out from the woman who saw the parachutist the reason i say it's unclear is because because see they go into a church the pastor's asking or the priest is asking you know what were they enemies or allies and she never answered i don't know just a man you know is who said shush right like, all right that doesn't answer the question what side <laughs> do you think they're on so the americans are jumping and they land near the burning building they immediately get shot at and also shot and killed so the guy who yeah. gets hooked on the on the Church. Church. I feel like he was probably a real person. And who had the story. Who yeah. had the story. And that's why they filmed Did, the story. Hold on. I'm trying to write because I know he gets he gets shot at. He has his knife and he's trying to cut his th- his um parachute cables and then he drops his knife. He gets shot in the foot. Do we see no. him die? It's, no, we see we, him later with his okay. foot all bandaged up. Uh, sitting in a house. Oh, that was him. I forgot. The- yep. <laughs> There's so many white dudes in this movie. I can't <laughs> keep track. So, Even the titles don't help. <laughs> so uh, this actor's name is Red Buttons. All right, which I think yeah. is a great name. Uh, and he just kind of keeps mugging for the camera in a way where I'm not sure if this is supposed to be funny. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, no, looks like my whole squad's getting shot off right down there. And just kind of with these weird bug-eyed expressions, which I thought was a weird... Yeah, but I think that's his just like his like the actor's trademark. Yeah, he's a comedian, right? Yep. Also, uh, that is a real story, uh, and it's so famous that the church in Saint Marigliese still has a tribute to the paratrooper who got stuck there with a like little parachute dummy hanging from a um, a silk uh, parachute attached to the church, just kind of as a memorial to the guy who got stuck there. During and the job. Survived. And <laughs> yep, and he got shot in the foot, survived, and kept traveling back to St. Mary Glees throughout his life. That's wow, that's really cool. All right, so next, is this Tony that this happens to with the clicking? 
The two clicks guy? I don't think so. Okay. American soldier landing, and he gives one click. In return, he hears what it sounds like two clicks, but is instead the bolt. <laughs> oh, he does it twice, doesn't he? It's not really coming through, Christian. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I was trying that on my... I don't have an actual rifle with a bolt, but I do have a Nerf gun with a bolt. And it, it, was, it worked on a visual medium, which this is not. That's right. We appreciate the effort, though. He does one click. He hears what he sounds like two clicks, but is actually the bolt of a rifle and gets shot. So, yeah, he hopefully explains, I heard two clicks. <laughs> yep. Which is classic movie making. <laughs> it's not Tony in the scene, but Tony okay. does show up the next scene. Ah, okay, okay. I also wanted to say in this whole part, there's lots of helmet removals, which is also <laughs> very common in war movies, but very unrealistic. I listened to, I know I keep being your Band of Brothers, sorry, but there's a part of the Band of Brothers podcast with Donnie Wahlberg, where they want him to film a scene where he's like looking out over the countryside very heroically, and he's Mm -hmm. supposed to take his helmet off and just hold it. And he talked to Dale Dye, who was their military advisor, and Dale Dye says, don't you even think about taking that helmet off, son. So he did it. And the idea is that you would never take your helmet off. Anywhere close to the front, under any circumstances. That makes complete sense. So we go back to Vandervoot. Apparently, he upon landing, he got a compound fracture. Landed five miles from their drop zone, so they have to get to where they need to be. This is actually, well, not there, but the scene before with Tony yeah. is uh, actually probably my favorite line in the movie. Where they're talking, and he, Tony's talking to the other group and saying, "Where? Well, who are you? Where are you with?" Oh, that's right. You don't have any idea. And then there's a big explosion. And the guy looks over and says, "Well, somebody's shooting somebody." <laughs> I don't know. There's something about the way he delivered it with kind of that drawl was perfect. <laughs> yeah. So the Nazis are receiving reports. Higher ups believe this is a dis- diversion, and they still believe that Pas de Calais is the where the real invasion will happen. Yeah, they believe that for a long time, in my understanding. Mm-hmm. Oh, Zach, have you ever watched the movie Operation Mincemeat? Well, I actually think we're going to be covering that soon. Mm-hmm. Cool. But I have not seen it. That'll explain all about why they thought it was Pas de Calais. <laughs> oh, okay. Really? I thought that was a different... Operation. Operation. I thought that was for, like, a Italian... Oh, yeah, you, I think you're right, actually. that Because been... I used to connect the two. So they used to have a whole thing on, or a whole little display on it, on, on Operation Mincemeat in the old Spy Museum, which was right next to their thing on D-Day. So I always conflated the two in my mind. But then I did a little more research and reading on it, especially since we covered a bit of Operation Mincemeat all the way back in one of our first episodes mm. of Fleming. Yeah, that's right. I got them mixed up. Yeah, yeah they could have been like, won't get fooled again. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So here's where we get our next big title. General Theodore Roosevelt, U.S. 4th Division, which made me realize, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Teddy. (laughs) Played by Henry Fonda, another big scene show. Yeah. (laughs) Gives this whole big speech about how he wants to be on the ground with his men fighting from the front, not, you know, leading from the back. Even though he's an assistant division commander, which is basically an administrative role. Mm-hmm. But he's he been said, training with these men, and they expect to see him down there. He does say that he he feels he would have been there if not for his relationship to the president. Right. So it's possible that the assistant division commander would have gone in with them. Mm-hmm. After all, Robert Mitchum goes in. <laughs> yeah, he does. And next we meet Commandant Philippe Kiefer, 
Commando Francais. And he's got a model of the bridge in town and showing, all right, this is where, you know, the church is. This is where the casino is and the bridge and the hotel. And he makes this whole big speech about how we're going to be fighting our own soil now. We've been fighting before, but now we're fighting for home. <laughs> Very glad I didn't try a French accent there. Yeah, it's not really clear why this hotel and casino is so important that they take it. But I guess they're going to take the whole continent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta take it eventually. (laughs) Next, we meet General Oberst Alfred Jodl, who's uh, Chief Their Operations Berlin OKW. Yeah, I have him down as the Panzer Commander. Yes, that is his role. And someone tells him that they won't wake the Fuhrer because this must be just a commando raid. It can't be the full invasion, and they need the Fuhrer's approval to release the Panzers. This was very true, and it was a very big screw-up by the Germans. <laughs> so we go to Nazis on one of the beaches. The guy who's in charge is looking for his dog. As he's doing that, he spots the ships, and he goes, Mein Gott! <laughs> 5,000 of them. This is really funny, where he sees them through the binoculars and then turns around, and then the, you can see him with the naked eye behind him <laughs> in like the space of about five <laughs> seconds. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's that movie magic. <laughs> yep, yep. And we next go to Admiral Jajard, Orse Francaise Libre, Libre, who gives this big speech to the fleet, of which the contents of which I do not remember. It's basically go get him, yeah. yeah. And we cut back to Goldfinger, who is again bringing coffee to the troops, and he gets caught in the shelling of the beach. And you yeah, missed another it... title screen. Oh, did I? What did I miss? Yeah. Uh, General Omar Bradley, U.S. First Army. Uh, yeah, yeah, your right. favorite guy. <laughs> well, no, but um, what I find funny is that the actor has clearly been told to look like Omar Bradley by uh-huh. like sticking out his chin and holding his <laughs> lips real wide. Uh, anyway, I just find it funny when actors are like, "All right, do your best to look like Omar Bradley," and like, kind of make this exaggerated <laughs> <Taste>. expression. <laughs> Does he even, like, say anything in the movie? I don't remember him even having dialogue. That's probably why I missed him. Well, I certainly remember the name. DJ, do you want to tell him... Do you want to talk about the Omar Bradley biography that DJ read? Did we talk about that last time? Um, I don't know that we did, but... I read the Omar Bradley autobiography. Yeah, it was just interesting. Um, it's a lot of him shit-talking other generals. <laughs> and, DJ, you also told me that he would say things like, Today we invaded Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> The diary would be like, and here's how I formulated this plan for this attack on this hill in North Africa, and then we did this, and then the troops followed through this way, and I figured we should go around the side this way and stuff. And then the next, it's like, and then we invaded Sicily. (laughs) So, yeah. I'm kind of like, Omar, can you tell me how it felt to invade Sicily? That's what I want to know. There's a lot of other stuff you could just read in a history book. One thing he talked about um, in the book is how on D-Day, commanding... I believe multiple divisions on D-Day, the American ones. It, he could have not been there and things would have gone exactly the same. Just sort of the feeling of being the least important person involved with the invasion at that point. Like you've done all your planning ahead of time and that's when you have to figure out everything. That's when you have to make any plan that you want to have happen needs to have be decided before that day because you can't come up with a plan on the fly and communicate it to people. So yeah. Yeah. Despite what movies would have you believe. They do that a lot in this movie, too, where they're like in the plane. They're like, all right, we got to go here and here. <laughs> like, you would have figured that out already. But I, CJ, I think Eisenhower felt similarly. He's yeah. in the same situation. Yep. 
But anyway, yeah, so so there's this bombardment, and it seems, like, fun. Like, it's funny. Like, people don't get killed in these bombardments. Mm-hmm. Like, the French people who were teasing Goldfinger were, like, so happy that they're there, but also their house is getting destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Goldfinger's getting bombarded, and it's really comic. Did he? Do you think he's dead? Do you think Goldfinger's dead here? No way. Oh. He can't kill Goldfinger. <laughs> I can't tell if he doesn't I, die I think on he screen. runs away actually. <laughs> yeah. So Priller, the pilot, is put on alert he, and reiterates, "We've only got two planes, so well, yeah, what do you want us to do?" He's absurdly sassy in this part, <laughs> and and angry German. <laughs> well, next we get the big title text: Omaha Beach, six thirty-two <laughs> or six hours thirty-two minutes. Well, I think it's oh six thirty. Oh six thirty-two. There's some obvious rear projection here. There's a part where it shows a duck boat, and behind it is another duck boat coming out of a larger ship. I thought that was funny. Mm -hmm. So the Nazis are scrambling to defend. The boats are landing, but the troops get pinned down on the beach. There's heavy casualties. It's a lot of fighting. Not much to say here other than that, yeah, (laughs) that happens. Well, there's a part where one of the generals tells this kid, go back and get your rifle. Oh, that's right. Was that here? Yeah, it was on Omaha Beach. Yeah, it seemed kind of mean. (laughs) Well, Well, I think you're going to need it later. Well, yeah, but it's not like there's not rifles around. There's plenty of dead people that you could pick one up on of theirs. He didn't have a rifle either. (laughs) (laughs) So also, there's part where guys are carrying rafts. Do you guys know what the deal is? Is it just to clear them out of the way so other people could get through? I, I believe that the rafts actually contained engineering supplies, ah, and when they talk about those Bangalore yeah. torpedoes later, mm-hmm. um, that that's what they brought them up in is in the rafts. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. So that scene there, actually, I want to talk about. They do this giant sweeping scene that appears to have been. They looked like they were bombing the hell out of the actual Omaha Beach. It <laughs> um, <laughs> looks great. Yeah. yeah. I was I was really impressed with how many people they got for this shot all mm-hmm. the run up simultaneously. I thought that was really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, these long shots of a plane flying over the beach with a lot of guys running up. That's what I remember from the last time I saw this. <laughs> Nothing else basically except that. So we next go to Utah Beach, 0644, where Teddy Jr. is issuing orders. They're apparently a mile and a quarter south of where they should be. <laughs> Yes, he says, we'll start the war from right here. I always thought the line was, we'll start the war right here. No from. I mean, not that it really matters. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, so his quandary is, all right, our reinforcements and supplies might be going to the right beach, but we're on the wrong beach. So what do we do? Do we try to get there? Do we stay here? And they try to find us. So that's when he gives his speech. Yeah, and then they look around and they see the heavy stuff coming to their beach anyway, which is kind of funny. So it all worked out. <laughs> we next go over to Gold Juno Beach, 0649, where yeah. those two Nazi pilots, Priller and his unnamed buddy, yeah, his co-pilot, run. And this was a really good aerial long shot. It looked amazing. Yeah, it really did. But it was ruined by the airplanes, which are very clearly not Messerschmitts. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that. That one, I was like, that doesn't look like a Messerschmitt. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a flimsy trainer of some sort. I don't actually recognize it. But those were immediately upstaged when walking up the beach, who do we get? 
Oh, yes. We're at Sword Beach, 0653. Everyone's favorite beach, Sword Beach. The Brits are landing, and here we get Sean Connery. Literally, a, this movie is released a week before Dr. No comes out. So he's not as well known. He's still already done a few things, including... Derby O'Gill and the Little People. Yes, I was <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> I knew you would. Uh, but, so this is before James Bond, but I liked him here. One He's of the very Brits Scottish the, here. One of the Brits at the front is like, let's give him back for Dunkirk. He's like, you hear that? Dunkirk? I'm sure he was still at school at the time. <laughs> I also want to say around here, there's you see some, uh, what was it? Someone's Funnies. Oh, CJ, yeah, the, do you remember? Um, Herbert's Funnies. Herbert's Funnies or whatever. So they're tanks with really weird stuff on it, like oh, bulldozers okay. or mine clears. You can see uh, them Hobart's. in the background. Hobart's Funnies. Yes, thank you. They gave this eccentric British guy basically leave to modify a bunch of tanks to be better at engineering roles. Among them were flamethrower tanks. What? Um, tanks. Oh, you didn't know about the flamethrower tanks? Yeah, they're great. Oh. Tanks that mounted mortars um, designed what? for destroying concrete walls specifically. That's amazing. <laughs> um, the, the, the swimming tanks, I believe, were part of his program. Um, just kind of all these different... Like, hey, what if we had a tank that did that sort of things for the invasion? Um, well, why don't we anymore? Yeah. Well, the, the British were very proud of their funnies. So, <laughs> Well, and the thing is, they were really effective, but the U.S. didn't want to use them for, just because they thought it was stupid. I and mean, probably, well, it probably got a lot of people killed at Omaha Beach. So, uh, come on. And if you play video games like yeah. uh, Company of Heroes, which is a... Mm-hmm. It's like StarCraft, but World War II, you can just build a lot of flamethrower tanks, which gives you the impression <laughs> that there's a lot more than there actually were in the war. Right. Yeah. Also, I just want to say that there's bagpipes, and I was pretty sure that was non-diegetic, but we've come to find later that it was diegetic <laughs> bagpipes. The yeah. bagpiping was my favorite part. I just like the quote where they're like marching. He's like, hey, you there, play Blue Bonnet, and he just starts playing the bagpipes. <laughs> yes. Commander Colin Maud, Beachmaster, Royal Navy. Beachmaster with his dog. Yeah, his dog. Is it? Yeah, Winston. Yeah. I found it interesting. I caught somewhere that um, apparently they used his actual, like, the cane he was walking with mm-hmm. was the actual one that the guy had on the beach on D Day. Yeah, he was apparently a consultant on the film. Yeah, him and Theodore Roosevelt Jr. both having canes. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's the beach master. He's telling people where to go. And, and there's a reporter who comes over to him who's trying wants to put a news briefing through his radio. He's denied. So they use pigeons instead. And one of the pigeons goes the wrong way. Wrong this whole part was so great. <laughs> we will someday talk more about when we do that animated pigeon movie, Zach. Yeah. I'm going to make you do it. It's okay. Uh, yeah, I, I like the pigeons here. I like the part where he's like, bloody traitor, as they go the <laughs> wrong way. Now, also, this part, there's the, the uh, movie cliche of an uh, engine's not working, so you smack oh, it, and then oh, it's yes. working. That's right. <laughs> that was good. So, and, like, yeah, this whole part is just all these little vignettes. Like, yeah, and Sean Connery just watches all of them and laughs. I them, love like, that. He's... Just him just commenting on everything. <laughs> Alexandre <laughs> Renault. Yeah, that's him. Alexandre mm-hmm. Renault. I recognize the helmet. That's how I knew it was the same yeah. guy. Yep. Uh, but he comes back and he's welcoming all of the troops there. He's got a bottle of champagne. He said he saved it. So it's actually probably real champagne. <laughs> and, From France, um, yeah. Was it uh, Commander Maud who tells him we, you know, we're a bit busy here? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it Someone was great. Tells him that. And then 
yeah, Connery and his buddy are coming. He's like, there's a lot of weird people on this beach. <laughs> the next thing I have is just a little bit of German friendly fire for the uh, the, the two Messerschmitts, which are not no, Messerschmitts. Was, no, no, those were French planes. No, those okay. were British planes. Oh, were they? Well, the patch Spitfires. on the... They were Spitfires, oh. but the patch on the, on the pilot's thing said France. Oh, maybe there were French pilots flying for the um, Royal Air Force. But yeah, so, they, yeah, they strike some Germans and really screw them up. Yep. Really mess him up. And we get our next big title, Point du Hoc 0711. Yeah, this part was rough. A lot of Americans get killed. And I think these guys are supposed to be army rangers. Okay. They never say that, but that was in the book. So they've got to climb up this mountain and take out the guns on the top. They deploy these ginormous grappling hooks and climb up there. And a bunch of them get shot as they're going down. There's a lot of fighting. And... Then we, when they finally get to the top, they find that the gun mounts that they thought were going to be there were never installed. And yeah, so it's it, all for nothing. It sucks. Also, there's a part where they blow up an, a machine gun nest. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good effect where these bodies go flying out of it. They were probably dummies, yeah. but it looked very real. So next we go back to the Panzer commander. We find out that the, someone tried to tell the Fuhrer, but he went into one of his tantrums, which of course made me think of the meme. Of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Because he went into one of his tantrums, no one wanted to broach the topic of the panzers, so they're still holding the panzers and they have no access to them. I I guess no one watching this movie is going to be on the German side, but if you were a German, I'm sure it must have been ridiculously frustrating. Mm -hmm. So we get reinforcements have finally arrived at the bridge, and here's your non-diegetic bagpipes. Yeah, your diegetic bagpipes. Yeah, more bagpipes, that was great. But the thing about them being relieved at the bridge is you don't see these guys since they arrived at the bridge at all, so it's not clear whether it was difficult for them to be holding the bridge or but not. You get your last echo. Uh, what, was, what, what was the <laughs> yeah. phrase? Hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. <laughs> and But he's the only guy who has head voices. <laughs> it's really strange. when you put. Yeah. It, I, I think everyone in the movie should have been hearing voices. Yeah. <laughs> We go back to Vandervoort. Apparently, it was almost going the wrong way because someone changed the sign. We get a bunch of 101st troops who are there, and he takes control of them. They get folded to the 82nd. There's a lot more fighting. They're trying to take the city. A bunch of people are in a church, and then as the wounded, uh, there's a bunch more people wounded, and then the nuns come, and we find out they're actually qualified nurses. They're bandaging up all, all the soldiers. This was another of those amazing shots where they mm-hmm. film the soldiers racing across, uh, overrunning the German position, racing up to the bridge, racing across the bridge, explosions all around, machine gun fire everywhere, racing <laughs> up to the hotel, and it's all one long shot. Yeah, that was something else that I remember from the first time I saw this movie, was just that it just keeps going, going. When the French commandos, this is when they finally take the hotel and the casino, they tie it all on tail. And then later, when the one guy goes back to get a tank, there's a good effect where he's running across a footbridge and it explodes in the middle, and he has to hold on to it like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom to avoid going into the water. So that was a cool effect, too. I would have liked to see these nuns actually being nurses. Mm-hmm. Since they spent all this time with them, but I guess we're running out of movie. I'm surprised you didn't bring up Sound of Music like you do every time there's nuns and more. <laughs> I don't know about it every time. But Pretty yeah, much. nuns and Nazis. Yeah. I didn't even think of it. That's a good mm-hmm. point. Yeah. 
I also have a, a note here. I'm starting to get bored. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of fight. That's why my note is just more fighting. So again, I'm impressed because we get this like clearly very ancient looking stone fortification on a hilltop mm -hmm. and the movie blows it up. They do this giant explosion that blows out a side of it. I, it must've been some kind of effect, but I just can't believe that they were allowing explosions around all this stuff. Cause it, <laughs> It just looks to my eye like it's very... It must have been there. It must have been, you know, a hundred-year-old French fortification of some kind. I mean, but... people back in the day were very clever with matte paintings. Uh, yeah. Or some other kind of effect. Or anything, yeah. Models, yeah. But whatever the effect, it was incredibly effective. Nice. Yep. Um, so we get the Nazis strategizing, and they say that if they can hold them on the beach, the invasion will fail. And we cut over to Omaha Beach, where, hey, they're being held on the beach. There's a hill that they can't get up. Who's the guy in charge here? I, I couldn't Robert remember. Mitchum. Ah, yes, yes. Robert I don't remember the character name, yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert it says Mitchum. Brigadier General Norman Coda. Oh, Coda, that's right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. named. One of his officers is saying, thinking about calling a ship to get them, and he's like, no, we're, you know, we're not going to go back. We need to go around. We need engineers and weapons. So they go about trying to find both those things. They get told later Omaha is in shambles. Mm -hmm. And we don't really see that. It's more like we're being told that. Mm -hmm. We also get, I think, is this Red Buttons who's in the building near the church and is like basically deaf? Yep. So he's been deaf because the church bells have been going off and he's been right there. And he's got his, I, now I remember his, oh, that's all connects now. He was the, <laughs> that was the church. He was up there. Yeah, um, right next to is. the church bell. Yep, that makes sense now. <laughs> yes, it I, does. Like, I finally got that as well. Yeah. I didn't realize it. <laughs> so we get Vandervoort coming into the town, and as he does, he sees all the parachutists, dead parachutists, who are still hung up on trees and telephone poles, and he like demands that they be, will get cut down. So he tells his man that we're going to hold this town until the link up with everyone else. So this is what I call a fake ending. <laughs> yeah, that's like there's even like a swell of music too. It's like, oh, is that it? Well, there's still like 20 more minutes here. Yeah, because it, it shows the guys walking and it plays the longest day theme music. And it, it made me think of the end of Dead Dobbs and Broomsticks when they go marching off to war. Ah, uh, that's a good movie. So it seems like it's the end, but then it's like, nope. Nope. There's still <laughs> I think another. it's the end of John Wayne's scenes. So uh, maybe that's why. We didn't get a farewell to Sean Connery. <laughs> Nope. Well, he's, he's just getting started. That's true. That's true. I guess we just see him, uh, you know, coming into the uh, to the bridge, and that's what we see of him. The Allies are getting reports on everything. Omaha's still stuck. And then Captain Pike arrives at Omaha Beach. That's right. He gets nice a field promotion again. or demotion to lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> now, Coda tells him the plan. They're going to blow a hole through a wall to get through, so they do that using the, what kind of Bangalore Bangalore yeah, that's the one. So they do that. They get the hole. They load a bunch of explosives into the hole, and Pike's running back with a detonating cable, but then gets shot and dies. And dies. you have to say that because sometimes you can get shot. And that's true. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, something I like. Dies. So something I liked is that he gets hit, and he kind of goes, huh, and then he just 
is like face down. I know in a lot of these old movies, especially cowboy movies, when people get shot, they have like a big dramatic where they like spin (laughs) around and flail their arms around. And that's really not very realistic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel realistic either. Next one I have is really nice extra work where once they blow a hole through the fort, it's just hundreds of guys all running through and it looks very real. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah. Just having all those extras. Again, I think this was probably on location. Mm. Um, but maybe not. I guess there are a lot of beaches in the world, but <laughs> could be. They're already there. Is this tell? Who is this? This is Tony. This was Tony. I was one. I couldn't tell if this was Tony. <laughs> he's in this farmhouse. He's looking around. Sees a dead Nazi, and then right behind the dead Nazi, he sees this downed British pilot. And then he uses a term that was used for the second time, but I didn't ca- like didn't pay attention. Ack ack. Yes. Yeah. What does uh, that mean? term for flack like one of the it was really hard to hit moving planes so uh. one of the strategies people used is they would just have their big guns fire shells that were fused to detonate uh-huh. at a certain altitude hmm. so these guns would just all be firing this stuff up in the air where they knew the planes were going to be and the idea was not to try and hit a single plane the idea was just to fill the air with so much flying shrapnel that you mm-hmm. bring down airplanes and uh, so that's kind of ak-ak. I think it's just the general term for all that explosive stuff going up in the air. I guess. Yeah, I see. Also, okay. also ak-ak, AA, anti-aircraft. Yeah. AA guns, uh, ak-ak guns, yeah. See, when they kept saying that, I just thought of Mars attacks, where that's all the aliens in the Martians <laughs> say, ak-ak. I'm afraid not. <laughs> I was like, that's just, a w- yeah. Never heard that term. Interesting. All right. So yeah, him and the downed pilot have a bo- bonding moment. The pilot apparently has a wound from his crotch to his knee, and the medic came by and saw him, gave him morphine, and had to what do you use safety pins to stitch it, stitch him up? So I don't think he's gonna make it. Yeah, <laughs> melancholy speech. It's a very strange way to end the movie, right? I wonder who won. That was a good line. Yeah, and, and that's the end of the movie. And then we, yeah, we, we get, get a little montage of the other like of the other pl- beaches and everything, but then that's it. Yeah, they don't, there's no credit that's like, and then they won the war. <laughs> it does. There is a credit. It says the end of the longest, the longest day. day. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and then the, the longest day music goes over the end credits. And yeah, that's the movie. All righty, Zach, are you ready for some spy fact versus spy fiction? Yes. So because this movie is so well known, the IMDb goofs section actually yeah. had quite a lot. So All I didn't right. feel the need to... I'll have a little bit of that and a little bit from D-Day by Stephen E. Ambrose. Okay. okay. So first IMDb, though. When we first see General Norman Coda, he's describing to a subordinate how to wear a life vest. I do not remember this, but yeah. apparently it's in the movie. He teaches him in the movie how to put it on incorrectly. On April 28, 1944, during a D-Day rehearsal, German E-boats attacked a troop convoy, sank several transports, killing nearly 1,000 men many of them because they were wearing life belts in the manner showed in the movie around the waist, which is not correct. All right. Okay. Also, Colin Maud and his English bulldog Winston are shown spurring British soldiers into advancing up the beach. This was actually done at Juneau, which was the Canadian beach. Hmm. And Maud's dog was an Alsatian, a.k.a. a German shepherd, not a bulldog. All right. That, was, there's, that goes that one for me. <laughs> John Steele was the paratrooper who got hung up in the churches hmm. and he said far from being deafened by the church bell he didn't even notice it oh wow i mean because oh. there's probably also explosions going around too 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. The American paratroopers are incorrectly shown standing with a jump master who tells them, go, 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 like in every movie, right? <laughs> but the reality was that as in all combat jumps, the jump master goes first and everyone else just goes as fast as they can. Interesting. Okay. Makes sense. There'd be no reason for them to wait for, to be told. It's not yeah. a water slide. <laughs> and then finally, the Rupert paratrooper dummies dropped on D-Day were not the highly elaborate and lifelike rubber dummies shown in the film. In reality, they were fabricated from sackcloth or burlap stuffed with sand or straw and were like crude representations of a human figure. Because hmm. they were supposed to look like humans from a distance. Ah, okay. A total of 500 dummies accompanied by a handful of SAS troopers were dropped at four locations. The SAS played recordings of battle noise, set off smoke grenades, and used their weapons to further enhance the deception. The whole operation was codenamed Operation Titanic. So that's from IMDb. A couple things here from... D-Day by Stephen E. Ambrose. Private Eldon Wee, I don't know how you would say his name, W-I-E-H-E, was a truck driver for HQ Battery 1st Division Artillery. He said when it was over, to this day, I've never shed another tear. I would give anything to have one good cry or one good laugh. I hurt inside, but I cannot get my emotions out since that day. I've never been able to. Oh. It's just a little reminder of what it cost. Mm-hmm. Wasn't all laughing Sean Connerys, <laughs> or you know, over the top French guys with champagne, mm-hmm. or goofy Goldfinger with a mule. Mm-hmm. What have you got? Yeah. So I've got something that I kind of hoped they would talk about, but they did not. Was the Ghost Army? Mm-hmm. The Ghost Army was a, d- a division formed by the U.S. Army, which basically had an entire large scale deception inflatable tanks and trucks that looked real from a distance which portrayed where a, a wrong location of where the invasion was actually going to happen so not only did they have all of these um tanks they also had used sound as well a bunch of sound trucks and and, and dummies they also appointed General George Patton as the leader of this battalion to fool the Nazis into thinking that they that he was really there and that he was going to attack elsewhere I'm sure he loved that. Uh So a replica of one of the inflatable tanks is currently at the Spy Museum. It's right after you exit the main exhibitions in what they call the veil, the glass section in front of there. I think I have a picture in front of it from their grand opening. Fun story. That was actually a larger one, which they used to have just outside, but high winds kept making it fly away. So they commissioned a slightly smaller version, which sits inside now. We're talking about Goldfinger, a.k.a. Gert Frobe. As we said, he was German, and he did actually join the Nazi party in 1929 at the age of 16. He left in 1937. And in 1944, he was actually drafted into the German army, where he served until the end of the war. Hmm. After his party membership became known in World War II, Israel banned Gert Frobe's films until... Mario Blumenau, a Jewish survivor, revealed that just eight weeks later that his life and his mother's were probably saved when Gert Frobe hid them from the Nazis. So, Whoa, what eh? a guy. Eh? He's so, lucky to be alive considering he got drafted into the German army in 1944. Mm-hmm. Yep, so so he did actually serve unwillingly. Yeah. And actually had some good, you know, he actually saved someone. So he joined the Nazi party in 1929 at the age of 16. And then left. 
So, but he, so by 1944, he's probably like in his 40s. So I guess that's why he wasn't serving earlier. Yeah. I'm just surprised he hadn't been drafted sooner than that. Well, apparently in, that, in 1944, that's when the German cinemas all closed down. So any, so he would have had an out before that as an actor. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Took one of my, something I was going to talk about, which was the dogs. Like, were there actually dogs in, <clears throat> in D-Day? And apparently not only was there that dog, there were a number of paratrooping dogs in the ah. D-Day landings. So Lance Corporal Ken Bailey of the British 13th Parachute Battalion jumped out of a plane. With him was Alsatian Mutt named Bing. And he mm-hmm. had to be tossed out of the plane as anti-aircraft fire peppered the aircraft. He landed in a tree and had to be helped down. Did he ah. have a parachute? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think parachuting dogs today are strapped to a human. That's what, yeah. So I presume that would be the case here. Apparently, once on the, he was on the ground, he was ready. This is all from military.com. He was trained to sniff out hidden enemies, stand watch over sleeping allies, and locate threats such as mines or booby traps. Talking about things we didn't expect to be there, pastors. So there were actually a number of pastors who were there during D-Day, including mm-hmm. three Catholic priests, including F- Father Francis Sampson, the parachute padre, who served in the 501st Parachute Regiment, who was okay, among nice. 15... 1,500 soldiers who jumped behind enemy lines that faithful June 6th. So, yeah, he was one of them right up there. So, who knows? Maybe that was supposed to be him. Why didn't he get a nice title card? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's what I've got for spy fact versus spy fiction. Okay, so now it is time for our favorite quotes. There's some good stuff. ZJ, as our guest, would you like to go first? Yes. So, I think I already talked about mine earlier, which was when the paratroopers land and the guy says, well, somebody's shooting somebody over there. Um, <laughs> Just the the way he delivered it was great. There's also, and I don't remember the specific quote, but I found it hilarious how that green screen scene we were talking about, or I guess rear projection scene we were talking about, the Mm -hmm. German guy is basically like, oh, the Americans, they're so powerful. They're just (laughs) over there waiting to come over and take us. And (laughs) it was, uh, I, I just found it hilarious how, you can tell the movie was made in America for an American audience. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I've got a, I have a lot of quotes in the beginning because I think there's more talking and less fighting there. So I've got, would your men rather be ex- exhausted or dead? Which gave me very strong, like imperial vibes. Like, <laughs> like the empire. Just see, yeah. <laughs> like the galactic empire. You can just hear, hear Vader saying that to one of his underlings. Mm-hmm. And I, I had it for, you know, for the Allies as well as the Germans, it will be the longest day. <laughs> there, there's my German accent. It, it comes go. out once, that's about it. And from John Wayne, England's gone through the Blitz with a knife at her throat since 1940. Yeah, I, I don't know if that sounded much like John, John no, Wayne. Uh, I, I didn't even practice it, so... Wait, wait let, let me try it. England's uh, been going through the war with a knife since 1940. <laughs> Uh, accents right, quotes wrong. Would you combine the two somehow? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> and I'm too old a bunny to get very excited about all this. Now, where was I? Ah, oh, yes, two spades. <laughs> two more because I have to get one from Connery. But mm. the pilot says, "Your prospects for a long sleep are excellent. The invasion has begun." And mm-hmm. finally, the last one, just from Connery. Evil of it all, trying to drown a man before he's even had a chance to fight. Which was actually a very common thing that guys would get weighed down yeah all right go ahead zach now that i've done like seven of them yeah so part with the gambling i loved it when his friend says i think i'll go over and give it a big wang myself (laughs) 
yes, I am very immature. Thank you. One of the German guys who does the war game, they say, did you win? He says, have I ever lost? Which mm -hmm. sounds like something General Thrawn would say, or Grand Admiral <laughs> Thrawn would say. And then someone says, well, you were playing Eisenhower. I did like, we'll start the war from right here. But my actual favorite quote, which is also from Sean Connery, so I was afraid you were going to steal it, uh, is when the guy says, Black Bear, start playing. And Sean Connery says, it takes an Irishman to play the pipes. <laughs> I don't know why I liked it so much. I just thought the whole context was really cool. And he just starts playing and start marching. I was like, mm. yeah. <laughs> All right, so now it is time for our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 martinis, 1 being Avengers 1997, and 10 being even better than Taken. How would we rate The Longest Day? CJ as our guest, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, you know, I... I would probably rank it a seven, uh, which may be a little higher than I wanted to go initially. I honestly enjoyed talking about it and reflecting on it more than I enjoyed watching it, um, <laughs> which perhaps is a reflection of just how long the movie goes on. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess I will, I will stick with my seven and say I enjoyed it more in hindsight and uh, I probably would have given it lower while watching it. So you liked it much more than Tora, 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 because I remember you didn't give Tora, Tora, Tora a high rating and described it as dull, very dull. Actually, he movie... rated it six. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so not, the, yeah, not that much higher. This but... movie was dull. They didn't have as many, min like, so those planes were wrong. The planes were totally wrong. <laughs> but they only had, like, two of them, right? Rather uh, than Tora, 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 Tora where yeah. they kept throwing them at me. Um, <laughs> and the ships in Tora 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 they kept throwing at me and yeah so this one I think um, I, I think it benefited mm -hmm. from having both a wider scale of the whole D-Day landings were a much larger undertaking than the Pearl Harbor attack and additionally they didn't have to rely as much on miniatures and those wide sweeping mm -hmm. shots were really impressive Oh yeah. so that brings the grade up one minus three for each hour that I had to sit watching it <laughs> hmm. All right. Uh, I can go next. So I yeah. think I'm actually going to. I didn't like this one as much as Tora Tora Tora. I liked that one much more. I'm going to give it a five out of 10. So there's parts that I really liked. Once the fighting started, I got pretty bored because there was no direction. It's just they, they fight and they fight and they fight and they fight and then the movie ends. Yes, the long sweeping shots looked good, but just in comparison to Tora Tora Tora, where there was a defined story and you were moving towards something. I like that a lot better. This for me had many of the same problems that Tora 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 did in that. And I, I made my point about it is you have all these characters who appear for one scene to do the one thing that they, in, they are known to do in history and then never appear again. That's true. Just like in real life. And, well, that make like I, this filmed in a style. It's not a movie. It's like a documentary almost, you know, minus every time someone mugs for the camera base, every name actor mugs for the camera. That's an interesting point, because maybe Tora 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 primed us. Yeah, that's true. And while I enjoyed it and, you know, there were parts where like, all right, as a, as, as soon as my interest started to wane, I was like, oh, here comes Sean Connery or something <laughs> like that. Or it's like, all right, there's something, you know, something that would pick up my interest again. I'm going to have to rate it a five as well it's it's the spy action is very very rare it's minimal yes yeah even more so than tora 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 which at least had the intelligence angle of you know all that stuff as a movie it's 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 good but it's just not 
a great spy movie. And it's much longer than it really needed to be. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, EJ. Anything you would like to plug? Uh, nope. I understand you've been guest starring on Tuesday Night Gaming, <laughs> which yes, we'll be yes. covering. We'll be covering Obi Wan Kenobi around now. Obi Wan Kenobi. So maybe we'll get more, you know, voice uh, head voices. <laughs> maybe tie it all together. Well, ZJ, thank you for appearing on this episode with us um, for your, you know, World War II expertise. Yeah, I enjoy uh, showing up. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us. You can find us on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And we are The Spy Fi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to The Spy Fi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.